first, I would like to emphasize the important moment where we are. I experienced this here today, after I arrived, we passed a door where it says Institute for Philosophie here, und Leadership. No, I was a little bit shocked. <laughs> and then Finkel explained to me that this is all part of this Bologna reform, umstrukturierung, where, uh, you know, even we philosophers has to look for connections with business and so on. No? Uh, why do I find this problematic? Uh, not just for obvious reasons. It's kind of easy critique, but do you know that the goal of this reform and all pressures connected with it is a very precise and can be put in the terms of Immanuel Kant when he opposes uh, public use of reason, I think the German term is and private use of reason. You know the paradox. For Kant, public use of reason is not uh, working for the state, for community. This is for Kant precisely private use of reason. When your reason is in advance limited by tasks, problems decided by others. Why? In public use of reason, you can afford to be radical. So uh, this is what I think is the ultimate dangerous goal of this push towards reform, which is now, as we all know, uh, acquiring almost ridiculous threatening dimensions, for example, in England, in Netherlands. This idea, to put it very simply, I simplify, but it's true. They want to make ultimately out of universities, factories for experts. I participated in a debate two years, three years ago in Frankreich, in France, where I, there was also a politician, you remember this was the time when cars were burning in Paris suburbs, who explained to me, I'm grateful to him, very clearly, he said, who needs your big metaphysical, philosophical thinking? Look, now cars are burning in the Paris suburbs. So what we need are psychologists to, uh, to, to teach us how to contain, how to control the crowd. We need urbanists to teach us how to structure the city so that, cr that mass and crowds cannot gather too easily, and so on and so on. Sorry, but this is not intellectual life. Intellectual life is first and foremost something else. It's not to solve problems formulated by others. It is to, the first thing when we, if we want to be intellectuals, when we confront a problem, the first question to ask is, what if the way we formulate the problem is already part of the problem, that we mystify the problem? For this type of thinking, where you are not simply expert solving problems formulated by others, there is unfortunately less and less space. And I think it's, again, extremely important to insist on this. And frankly, let's not forget, I'm serious here, I've written three books about it, that if there is some meaning in Jesus Christus Spaltung split with Jewish establishment, it's precisely that the establishment of Herod state was, if you want it, public, sorry, private use of reason and 
the community of believers of Christ was public use of reason. This is how I read these provocative lines, you know, if you don't hate your father, your mother, you are not my follower. No, it doesn't mean some Oedipal stupidity that come to me to Christ and I will help you to finish your fight with your parents. For me, the way I read it, I wonder if you will agree, father, mother, sisters stand here for this traditional hierarchic social community. And the idea is that there is, maybe for the first time in history, an egalitarian space outside this hierarchic order. So, I'm, I'm, I've been dankbar for what you said is, Jesuit und Zizek, das passt nicht zusammen. Yes, I agree, but then also, you know, I'm in good company. The Jewish stand from 2000 Jahren und Jesus hat auch nicht zusammengepasst. <laughs> I should say, you Jesuits were for me always the good guys. You have a wonderful tradition, starting, for example, with, are you aware how uniquely, unique it was historically? You remember, in, I think it was 16th, in, rich, it in 17th, early 18th century, the so-called missions or reducciones in Paraguay. I mean, this was the worst of European colonialism, not missions themselves, but the way the big colonial powers, Portugal and Spain, Portugal dominating Brazil, Spain dominating all other Latin America, out of pure envy or colonial interests, they manipulatively adopted this hatred of Jesuits, which was at that point, it was popular as we know in Europe to hate Jesuits, to justify this totally unfounded attack on the Jesuit state there. And you know what a good job Jesuits were doing there? Do you know, for example, that Jesuits were there already printing books in their own Indian Garani, or how is it called, language? Can you even imagine just if Jesuits were allowed to do their work to the end, how the entire picture of Latin America would have been different. And so I don't quite agree with those followers of, not me, I'm not a post-modernist, as you rightly said, followers of like Michel Foucault, who paint this terrifying picture of Jesuit mission as some places of totalitarian control and so on and so on. Even Hegel, in a not quite justified way, makes some fun of this. But nonetheless, if you put it in the context of that time, this was paradise compared with all things that went around. And there are other things, like as a leftist, I'm telling you, I barely know a serious leftist who doesn't like Jesuits. From Brecht, we know very well that Brecht based his Lehrstücke on Jesuit plays, Eisenstein cinema. Do you know that Eisenstein wrote a wonderful piece where he grounds his theory of how montage of attraction in cinema should generate enthusiasm. He grounds his text on Loyola's exercises and so on. So no, we sind here unter Parteigenossen, how do you say? Don't be, give me a chance, no. So now, unfortunately, we have to do some serious work and I ask kindly for your patience and tolerance.
I would like to begin with a literary reference which maybe will surprise you. Uh, a work today half forgotten but interesting. Jack London's Martin Eden, you know, story of a writer, artist who at the end kills himself by drowning. How did <coughs> Martin Eden, the novel's hero, arrive at this point of despair? What pushed him to suicide was his very success, which was for him, for Martin Eden, totally enigmatic. After long years of struggle and hard work, Martin finally succeeds, becomes a famous writer. However, while he is living in wealth and fame, one thing puzzles him. Here now comes a here now comes a, uh, a, a, a quotation. A little thing that would have puzzled the world had it known. But the world would have puzzled over this bepuzzlement rather than over the little thing that to him, to Martin Eden, loomed gigantic. Judge Blount, a rich figure in the novel, invited Martin to dinner. That was the little thing, or the beginning of the little thing. He, Martin, had insulted Judge Blount, treated him abominably, and Judge Blount, meeting him on the street, invited him to dinner. Martin thought, reflected on himself on numerous occasions on which he had met Judge Blount, and when Judge Blount had not invited him to dinner. Why had he not invited him to dinner then? He, Martin, had not changed. He was the same Martin Eden. What made the difference? The fact that the stuff he had written and appeared inside the covers of his books. But it was work performed. It was nothing new. It was something he wrote long ago, and so on and so on. So, end of quote. What Martin Eden cannot accept is the radical gap that forever separates his let's say, real qualities, being a writer, having certain features as a person, from his symbolic status in the eyes of the other. He was treated as trash, no one, ignored by the rich, and he feels, I did not do anything new, I'm exactly the same person, all of a sudden, everyone is inviting me. What is going on? All of a sudden, he is no longer avoided by respectable public, he is a famous author invited by the pillars of society. But again, he is fully aware that nothing changed in him, in reality. He is the same person as he was. What Martin Eden cannot accept is this radical decentering of his personality, which, as Jack London puts it, resides in the minds of others. He is nothing in himself. He is just a concentrated projection of others' dreams. Uh, this realization kills his desire. A quote from Martin Eden. Something has gone out of me. I have always been unafraid of life, but I never dreamt of being sated with life. Life has so filled me that I am empty of any desire for anything, end of quote. So it is this conclusion that he was nobody, nothing, which 
drove which uh, pushed him to suicide. You know, it's this, this full existential awareness of how I am something for the others, my symbolic identity. But this has ultimately nothing to do with what I am in myself, not in the sense of some deep psychology, but in the sense of what I do, my achievements, and so on. This gap is intolerable for him. He becomes aware that what he is in himself doesn't matter. He functions socially as strictly what he is for the others. This also kills his desire because there is also an erotic subplot where the woman, his love object, who previously ignored him, all of a sudden now discovered what a great guy he is after his fame. So she cannot live with this gap. Now we are already in the middle of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, because what in psychoanalysis we call symbolic castration, it's nothing mysterious. It's precisely the name for this gap between my immediate reality and my symbolic title, what I am <coughs> for the others. The problem is that in our daily life, there is always some kind of mystification, or as already Marx put it, people think people treat someone as a king because they think he is a king in himself, but in reality, someone is a king because people treat him like a king. And you know, for political leaders, the problem is always how to blur this clear distinction. Politicians are always afraid that they will be caught in a situation where people will clearly perceive that they are nothing in themselves, that there is no substance for their authority. Now you will tell me what has this to do with our predicament today. It has, let me do a little bit before we go on to more serious waters, a little bit of analysis of, I hope some of you saw these films, of the two films which triumph at the last, uh, this spring 2011 Oscar ceremony. King, the King's Speech and The Black Swan. I hate both films. <laughs> the, problem of, uh, the problem of the King's speech is what? You know, it's the story of British King, I think Edward, whoever, who, before becoming King, has the problem of stuttering. And then we get the Australian coach, trainer, who teaches him how to speak properly. Okay, there is an interesting here political background also, because obviously the true opponent of the king, the guy who knows how to speak, is Hitler, of course. And you know, it's this bad, but this is not central. I want to propose a simple, naive, but I think correct reading of the film. I think that the king, when he stutters, he has right. It's, he has a great mind. He knows that, my God, why am I a king? This is stupid. He simply stutters as a kind of a very reasonable resistance to, wait a minute, what is this comedy? People treating me like a divine anointed king, and I cannot take it seriously. And his 
Stuttering is a kind of a resistance to seriously accept this title. So I think it's really a very sad story. It's a story about how someone who had normal Christian democratic uh, reflexes is then trained through a coach, a trainer, to become stupid enough to take seriously his title. It literally happens if you saw the film towards the end when the trainer, played by Jeffrey Rush, sits at the king's chair. And the king furious said, how dare you sit there? This is my chair. The trainer asked him, why is this your chair? The king shouts back, because I'm a king by divine right. And then, this is the most reactionary moment of the film, the coach says, now you got it. Now I cured you. Yeah, but it's a very sad end of illness. She simply, literally rendered him stupid enough to play seriously the role. Uh, and I think, I don't have time to go into this, I think that this is the greatness of the gospel, one of the marginal, not often not noted features. The way I read the gospel, Christ is doing this all the time. You know how, for example, when he is asked some question, Christ says, I will tell you a parable, a story. But then what regularly happens is that not only does this story explain nothing, but you know, <laughs> the problem is then how to read this story. It's all the time this kind of provocation, precisely a spontaneous, beautifully done revenge against this type of stupidity, of you know, simply believing I am uh, who I am and so on and so on. So again, what the movie says, the message is, the only solution to our crisis is to restore divine or paternal whichever authority. And the movie is very cynical because the message is we should learn to become stupid again. The master should believe that he is naturally a master and our lives will be better. Well, I hope this is not the only way to resist Hitler, to become stupid. Now, just briefly, let's go to the other side. The film, The Black Swan, the feminine counterpart, you remember the story of a ballerina played by Natalie Portman who gets so obsessed by her role that at the end it's death. Oh, this is even worse, I claim. In what sense? Uh, are we aware that this film revives, resuscitates the most reactionary myth you can imagine? This ultra-male chauvinist myth that why a man at least can be a king, that is to say, as a man, you can have your symbolic identity title, her professor, doctor, whatever, your public role, but at the same time you can enjoy private life. Why a woman has to make a choice. If you identify too much with your mission, it means self-destruction, death. It's, you know, this motive that we find, uh, for example, uh, in, uh, in many traditional stories, like, you know, Hoffman's Tales, where at the end, usually it's singing, not dancing. Although in Red Shoes, the nice film by Michael Pollitt, also dancing. This idea that we men are allowed to follow our mission, to be fanatics. Uh, with women, it's more problematic. It's death at the end. So the woman should stop and withdraw. And even in some contemporary films, unfortunately, you have this anti-feminist myth. 
For example, a very beautiful film, Krzysztof Kislowski, The Double Life of Veronique. You know, remember, it's the parallel story of two Veroniques. The Polish one fully identifies with singing, dies. The French one knows it's too risky, withdraws, happily survives. What I wanted to show you is how precisely today, in our critical times, when people start to doubt their, let's call it, symbolic public identity, the temptation is great to play this, to enact, to push for this return to your identity which is inscribed into your name. Even in communist China today, there is a massive return <coughs> sorry, to Confucian ethics. You know, Confucian ethics is precisely based on so-called rectification of names, like be truly what your name says. Like, you know, this traditional ethics where your ethical duty is to fully fit the particular role that you have in the corporate social body. And ironically, even today in China, the communists fully adopted this logic. When I visited China, I asked them, in what sense are you still communists? Isn't it, I told them, which is true, that this is the biggest revenge of communism on the Fukuyama dream on the end of communism, liberal capitalism. Yes, but it looks more and more that the best administrators of today's capitalism are ex-communists. No, this is their revenge. So they told me, no, 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 it's no longer communism. Today, we define our goal as harmonious society. Okay, I asked them, give me a stupid, simple explanation. What do we mean by this? They told me a harmonious society is a society where everyone does his, her, their particular duty. A leader is a good leader, father a good father, worker a good worker, wife a good wife, and so on and so on. So, of course, I exploded. I told them, this is so nice because we don't have here any multicultural misunderstandings. We know what this is. In Europe, we call this corporate fascism, you know, like, <laughs> it's cold here, no? uh, So, again, if you are truly Christians, you should explode here. Because I think the very idea of Heilige Geist, of Holy Spirit, is breaks with this. You know, the, the most beautiful part for me in Paul's letters is when she does refer somewhere, I must admit, I forgot where, to this corporate metaphor, you know, society as a human body, but did you notice how he turns it around? He says, no, for us Christians precisely, the lowest member of the body can be the highest, and so on and so on. This is the big temptation today. Okay, but nonetheless, so now we have this gap between what I am in myself, in my reality, and my symbolic identity. And, uh, I claim that for Hegel, now first I want to do my usual crazy thing, defend Hegelian notion or deduction of the king, of monarchy. It's much more crazy than you think. For Hegel, the definition of a king is precisely, it's a very tragic position in a way, it's a subject who accepts this 
radical dissenter man. The Hegelian king knows totally, I am nothing. I'm just a function of what people think that I am. The only reality that matters is my penis. My duty is to bring, uh, to produce, uh, to produce uh, next kings and, as Hegel says it openly, the duty of the king is to sign documents. He doesn't have to know what he is signing. This is decided by ministers who know, and so on, and so on. So, uh, what does this disenterment mean? That has to be accepted as a king. Uh, which, again, is the exact opposite of the king who believes that he is a king. You know, like Jacques Lacan has this wonderful statement that uh, a madman is not only a beggar who thinks he is a king. A madman is only the king who thinks he is a king. That is to say, a king who really thinks that in himself he is what people take him to be. Maybe you know it, maybe not, I love it. There is a wonderful anecdote. Uh, 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 about what happened during the big battle between the Prussian and the Austrian army in 1866, I think, Prussian-Austrian war, when uh, the Prussian king, formerly the supreme commander of the army, was observing the battle from a nearby hill. He looked worried at what appeared to him the confusion of the front, where, you know, to him, it looked the confusion. Some Prussian troops were even retreating, so he was very worried. Then, the famous General von Moltke, the famous strategist who planned the battle, at a certain point where King was still worried, totally confused, turned to the King and told him, may I be the first to congratulate your majesty for a brilliant victory. <laughs> this is what I like. The, the idea that the king who was the master, the total commander, was totally ignorant of what goes on. Already everything was controlled by Moltke. Nonetheless, formally, the king was the boss. So he congratulated the king. And I think that this is what Hegel was deeply aware of. And I think it's Hegel's Christian moment at his best. Especially actual today where, I don't know if you noticed it, but we are slowly stepping out of democracy into expert rule, literally. Did you notice the strange thing that happened in Greece recently? The Prime Minister proposed a referendum. All Europe was in a total panic. My God, ask the people horror. <laughs> then the Greeks decided just to nominate totally non-legitimized, a pure technocratic expert government, oh, big relief in Europe, and so on, and so on. And it's not just Greece. In Italy, it happened the same, and so on, and so on. He what Hegel knew is that uh, the greatest threat is when experts, those who are directly legitimized by their knowledge, abilities, take power. That this is the formula of totalitarianism. The paradox of Hegelian Staat der Vernunft, rational state, is that you must have an ignorant idiot on the top who decides. You can have experts, but they only give counsels, proposals, 
the decision itself that the gesture, yes, no, this is now the law, this is not the law, must not be made by experts. Here, I think, I don't have time to go into it, Marx totally missed the point in his early critique of Hegel's Rechtsphilosophy, where he makes all the fun of Hegel and so on. And history had a great revenge on Marxism here. Because in Stalinism, we precisely got a master, a leader, who thought that he knows, really. Stalin was not just like a king. Stalin was not just a symbolic top. The whole machinery was to demonstrate that he really knows. And then you get the nightmare that we got. It's the same with, uh, it's the same also with, for example, among other things, with Kafkaesque bureaucracy. People do not often notice that this abyss horror of Kafka's universe is not because we have some higher authority there which is purely irrational. No, it's bureaucracy. The definition of Kafka's universe is bureaucracy without a king, which then runs crazy. The formula of totalitarianism is not an arbitrary leader. No, it's experts take power. And you can even find this at the literal level. Like, did you notice that, for example, Stalin's origins are not the leader? He was the biggest mistake of his life, probably hired by, hired, as it were, by Lenin as, you know, in 22, I think, or 21, Lenin said, oh my God, we have so many things to decide in Politburo. We need someone just to take notes and put things in order. So, because Stalin was at that time considered a kind of a local idiot of the Politburo, first Lenin proposed it to Trotsky. Trotsky said, no, humiliating, I do So Stalin said modestly, okay, I will do it. And then, you know, two years later, Trotsky, Trotsky was a little bit stupid there, if you read history, because Trotsky believed in himself. He thought, who cares about this small bureaucrat? I will make one big speech and Stalin will be out. Well, he noted, you know, Trotsky was really tragic in the, from 23 to 25 seats, Trotsky was like, you know, that famous scene from psychiatric film cartoons where a cat walks above the precipice and falls down only when it notices that, no? Trotsky was already walking up in the air. He was totally without power, but he didn't know it. Then in 26, I think, he was reminded by Stalin, hey, look down, there is now. And he went all of a sudden, uh, so again, uh, I claim that this lesson, again, is uh, actual, especially today, when more and more politics is presented to us as simply the art of expert administration. That this is post-politics. This is the end of politics. You know why? Because the price we pay is that what is presented to us as expert knowledge is not really expert knowledge. First, I find it a little bit ridiculous to put bankers on leading positions, like now in Greece and Italy. Wait a minute, I mean, do they really know? I think the best argument is that they brought us 
into the crisis in which we are now. So, but let me make a more important point, a slightly, nonetheless, more refined point. The point here is what? Let me go to another topic, which may appear different, but it's basically the same, I claim. Did you notice how, whenever you have uh, uh, the procedure of measuring a qualification, grading in school, and so on. It's never a simple, flat procedure in the sense of we measure it, that's it. There is always a minimal gap between the actual procedure of grading, whatever, and the public declaration of the results. And you can experience this quite literally. You know, after you, isn't it that when you do an exam, even if you are pretty sure that your answers were perfect, there is always this minimum of uncertainty. You know, it's the gap between the reality and its symbolic registration. All things can be done in reality, but you never know what will happen. And back to Kafka, this is, I think, the great mystique of today's bureaucracy. It wants to be a rational expert bureaucracy, but this gap explodes again and again. For example, from Greece itself. I have a friend in Greece who told me his father, who is very old, stopped getting a, a pension, pension, retirement money for three, four months. So he complained, wrote to the ministry, why not? And I love this example. I couldn't believe it that it's true, but uh, I saw the document. Okay, it was translated to me from Greece, but I learned enough. I know enough Greece to see that they didn't like me. Namely, he got father the message of, from the ministry, which literally involved this pragmatic paradox. They, uh, it, the message was, the letter was addressed to him as a living person, but the letter said something like, sorry, but according to our documents, you are dead for three months. <laughs> Could you please visit us and prove that you are alive, and then you will get your, your, you will get your money back. This is from what uh, bureaucracy leaves, this gap between, you know, something can be true in immediate reality, but if bureaucracy says something, yo, it's an auto In this way, I'm tempted to read Kafka, Franz Kafka, when he wrote in some of his private notes that in our godless times, often these irrationalities of bureaucracy are the only contact we have with the mysterious behind <laughs> you know, this total mist, like, am I dead, am I, am I alive, or whatever, or how even, and the stories, we can multiply them, can be wonderful here. I have a lady, I know her, an old lady in France, again, it's not a joke, this lady got a letter from, uh, from city authorities that her identity card was stolen, so he should visit them there and demand a new card. She went there and said, listen, I have here my uh, card d'identité, they call it. I have it here. What's the problem? Ah, she got, she got the answer of a lifetime. The bureaucrat told her, I don't care what you have there. 
Officially, your card is stolen, so what you have in your hand is an illegal document. <laughs> Destroy it and ask for a new one. <laughs> if this is not divine dimension in secular times, then I don't know what divine is. <laughs> to go even to the end here, the most beautiful moment of this madness happened in the army, I'm sorry if some of you know the case, but it's beautiful. In the army, Yugoslav army, 30 years ago, to a friend of mine. <coughs> you know that, as in every army, after the first one, two weeks of training, when you are acclimatized to the army, you get some ritual where you swear, oh, I'm ready to risk my life for my country, blah, blah, and then you sign the document and you are in, you are fully a soldier. Okay, a friend, this friend of mine did something wonderfully naive. When he approached the officer with the book, big book where he would have to sign, he said, ask the officer a simple question. Is my signing this oath uh, obligatory or free? Officer told him, my God, we cannot order this, it's free. Okay, then the soldier said, if it's free, I will not sign it. And the officer told him, are you crazy? You will be arrested, and so on. Okay, after a long struggle, uh, my friend told the officer, look, let's make a deal. I will sign it if you give me a written order that I have to sign it. And my friend did obtain a document, which is, I think, a legend. I have a photocopy of it, where officer says, I thereby order soldier blah blah name to freely sign this document. <laughs> but you know, I don't think this is simply a totalitarian mechanism. Isn't it that at the most fundamental level, belonging to any social order involves at one level or another this kind of a paradox, you know? You are free, you have a free choice if you make the right choice, if I may put it like this, no? So what am I aiming at here? Uh, how, again, there have to be this gap of minimal contingency between measuring something in the sense of social evaluation and registering, like making it performatively stick, making it official, whatever you want. The two should not collapse. Now it's, uh, I even empirically can confirm this to you, in some progressive American schools, blah, blah, it's fashionable to say we will abolish exams, students will simply all the time be observed, evaluated by the teachers. The result is an extreme growth in anxiety and so on. Because, you know, all the result is not freedom. It's all the time you feel, under, you feel under pressure and control. It's the same for votes. I think the worst enemy of democracy, sorry if this shocks you, is, uh, is if we base our found ground, our votes, on simple actual abilities and so on. I think that all really existing democracies from ancient Greece to Venezia, Venice, which was, okay, a suspicious democracy, but nonetheless, understood well that in every democratic election there should be an element of contingency. And even, if I may permit myself here, the criticism of the great liberal thinker and so on, John Rawls, Theory of Justice, 
I think it doesn't work, this theory. Why? Because as every good Christian who has read St. Augustine's Confession knows, and even Rawls admitted it afterwards, his notion of just society works only if you cancel envy and resentment. That is to say, let me do a simple experiment. Imagine that, okay, I will sacrifice you, Dominique. Like, let's say we are members of a society where you are, even on the market, it works like this. You are successful, I failed on the market. Okay, isn't it much better for me if I am allowed to live in the illusion, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, that you are the same idiot as me or even I am much wiser than you, but you were lucky. In this way, it's much more tolerable to me. My narcissism is not hurt. I can tell to myself, this, sorry, don't take it personally, <laughs> this idiot was just hacked. But imagine what a trauma would have been for me if we were to live in a just society. Because then I would have to admit, my God, he is richer, which means because we live in a just society, he is much more intelligent than me. Hayek, Friedrich, with whom I don't misunderstand me, absolutely don't agree. Made here nonetheless an intelligent point. He said this, the market injustice of capitalism is not an obstacle of capitalism. It is what makes capitalism effective and uh, acceptable. So again, what I want to emphasize is that this minimal gap in elections, in evaluation and so on between the reality of the process, what we measure, and so on, and the decision, that this gap has to be maintained. And this is what, again, Hegel was fully aware in his theory of the monarch. That Hegel says in a brilliant way when, when he approaches the usual, uh, uh, the usual uh, critique, but aren't you aware that if we have hereditary monarchy, then who, then, who is the king is left to pure biological contingency? Hegel basically answers, but this is my point. You know, this already, ah, and incidentally we could go on here, into how the same even holds, don't you think, for love in a way. The lo love must be contingent. It shouldn't be based on actual properties. I mean, this should be, if you know minimally what is love, this should be clear to you. Like, the moment you can, the moment you can answer the question, why do I love her or him or whoever, uh, by saying, by giving reasons. It's not love by definition, because then we are in mathematical accountancy, like if you permit me a male chauvinist example, that lady has a nice smile, a beautiful breast, but that one has beautiful eyes, beautiful legs, more intelligent, so I compare, wait a minute, here only two, therefore, okay, I choose that one. This is not love. Love must involve a contingent element, uh, as they put it, je ne sais quoi, which is why, as good Christians, you should be horrified as what is going on today. Did you notice a strange tendency of that we are de facto returning to pre-modern arranged marriages and dating? 
when I flew two weeks ago back from United States to Europe with United Airlines, I looked into their Hemispheres magazine. I found a whole page advertisement which was terrifying to me. It says something like, we learn to outsource this and that work. Isn't it time to outsource our love life? No? And then they went into how if you're a successful manager, businessman, you don't have time to look for your partner. You go to the agency, you, you uh, put, you basically commodify yourself. You describe yourself, your interests, qualities, and they will take care of it. What disappears here? Unfortunately, this doesn't work in German, but it works in English and French, you know, where the expression is precisely to fall in love, tomber, to fall in love. So uh, I found in English, and my friend Alain Badiou found it in French, an advertisement for a dating and marriage agency where they use the same expression, and it's horrible for me. We will enable you to be in love without the fall. <laughs> but I doubt if this is love, you know, for me, Love is fall. Fall means this opening to the neighbor, this, I don't know why, but I am traumatized, I see you, I know. Love always has this wonderful retroactive teleology. You encounter someone on the subway, I don't know where, but once you are in love, it's always, my God, all my life I was waiting for you. Suddenly you understand that everything was pointed towards it. Uh, this commodification of love is mixed to something else. So maybe I will challenge you here about what I see. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, how you see you as whatever, Jesuits, Catholics, <laughs> sexuality. Because are you aware that we are approaching a state <coughs> gradually where passionate love itself love or too passionate a commitment is considered dangerous. You open yourself too much to the other. Can I give you an empirical proof, which will maybe surprise you? I go now to the lowest of the lowest of popular culture. Did you see the last James Bond film, Quantum of Solace? Did you notice something strange? At the end, it's the first James Bond where there is no sex between Bond and Bond girl. Now you will say, okay, it's one case, means nothing. Ah, let's go now to really lowest of the lowest. And here I was on the side of the church. I mean, uh, that uh, Da Vinci code, no? Uh, did you notice something strange? Again, no sex, love between Robert Langdon, the symbologist, and this grand, 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 grand daughter of Jesus Christ, Sophie Neveu or what? And I even think that this is the utterly perverse economy of the film, that poor Jesus Christ, according to the story, had to make love, you know, all this stupid theory, Christ had a child, blah, blah, just to cover up the fact that they had to make love, be sexually active, just to cover up the fact that there is no sex here between the two heroes. <laughs> Then the last novel, one of the big candidates to the worst novel of all times, The Lost Symbol. Absolutely not even a sexual tension. Things get even more mysterious. If you go to the last uh, Dan Brown film, Angels and Demons, there there is sex in the, in the novel, but 
no sex in the, between Langdon and that Italian scientist Vittoria Vetra, but no sex in the film. Where are we? Usually we thought Hollywood adds sex to make it more commercial. Now Hollywood is erasing sex too. I'm not glad about this tendency. <laughs> I think it's connected strictly with another tendency, this what I ironically call Western Buddhist bullshit, you know, this idea of don't attach yourself too much to any person, whatever, keep distance and so on. This is, this is for me, this is for me something horrible. And I noticed how unknowingly even some Christians accepted this in this way. For example, at the theological conference in the United States, I was part of a debate where I provoked some priests there. Okay, I asked them, how do you read that famous statement which I already mentioned? If you do not hate your mother and father, you are not my follower. I think they gave me some of them. A horrible answer. They told me, you know, it's a metaphor. It really means don't get attached to persons too much. They, they fell into some kind of a new age pseudo-oriental Bullshit. I told them this is a blasphemy. You are making out of Christ a kind of a stupid, petty, jealous God, you know. Love your wife, but no, no, I want to be loved a little bit more, you know, not too much. I told them you are totally wrong. When you love somebody, your neighbor passionately, Christ is there in this love. It's not that you have on the side to love him more. Then I really love this. One priest gave me than the strangest answer I ever heard. Then it's typical how another priest proposed another answer and so on, very self-contradictory. Then at the end, a priest told me, why didn't you tell us in advance we were not prepared, you surprised us with this question? And believe me, with great pleasure, I told them, my God, you had 2,000 years to prepare the answer. You know, like, it's, in the, it's not that I invented this now. You know? What I'm trying to tell you this is absolutely not to make fun of Christianity, but of a deep truth that there is something absolutely worth fighting in Christianity, something so traumatic, deeply true, that it's sometimes, not always, even too traumatic for Christian institutions themselves. You know that wonderful line, it's an anecdote, I don't know if it really happened, but when Napoleon was crowned emperor by the Pope, the rumor is that when Pope was approaching him, Napoleon simply took the crown and put it on his own. <laughs> and you know what the wise Pope told him then, Napoleon? He told Napoleon, I know what you want to do. You want to ruin Christianity. But I tell you, you will not succeed. We, the church, are trying to do this already for 2,000 years. <laughs> okay, it's not as simple as that, I know. But what I'm saying is that Christianity is absolutely alive in its radical, egalitarian, and so on, court more than ever, and it is under threat today, I claim. But precisely here I am, in an unashamed way, Eurocentric, precisely with this pseudo-Western Buddhism, pseudo-Orientalist uh, approach, and it's something very, it is something potentially very dangerous happening. Which is why, if I may make this brief political intervention, you know, when 
somebody praises European identity and so on, the threat to Judeo-Christian legacy, I think we shouldn't react like politically correct liberals who react with shame. Yeah, we know Europeans did all the horrible things from Holocaust to colonization, we killed millions and so on. No, maybe we should change the tone and be proud of European legacy, but of course not in the sense of the right-wing anti-immigrants. We should say the opposite. We should say, yes, Judeo-Christian legacy is threatened, but it's threatened precisely by people like, I don't know, Heider, Le Pen, whom you want. That Europe would no longer have been Europe. The real European legacy, which started maybe with ancient Greens, the crucial point being precisely Judeo-Christian legacy. For me, all good things begin with Book of, how do you say, Job, Hiob, the guy who was screwed Hiob. by God and so on. then going on to Christ, which you can view only as a repetition of Hiob, this is something which is not only alive but extremely important today. How can you say Christianity is no longer actual when our central, one of the central political problems today is precisely love your neighbor? Isn't the entire populist politics today based on mistrust, on who will protect us from the neighbor? Here, my beloved, theologist, uh, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, said something wonderful. He said, the Bible says, love your neighbor and love your enemy, and it's, it has good reason to say both these things, because the two are usually the same. <laughs> I mean, uh, the problem is there, you know, the Judeo-Christian notion of neighbor is not this comfortable communitarian notion of the guy who is like me, you know, the, what we say, the, the fellow man. Neighbor is not the fellow man. Neighbor is the fellow man who suddenly appears strange. Like, didn't it happen to you, this elementary traumatic experience? You think that you know someone closely, but all of a sudden this guy does something either in the good or in the bad sense, which shocks you. Like, it happened to me. I thought I have a good friend. Then somebody was dying of cancer, and this friend of mine started to make extremely brutal, humiliating, cynical remarks. And you know, you ask yourself, my God, did I know that person at all? Or, hopefully, that's a good sign, also in the opposite direction. This is very nice, you know, how you think somebody is simply a conformist and so on, but all of a sudden he does something heroic. At that point, you encounter a neighbor, I claim. A neighbor is something very traumatic. A neighbor is precisely this abyss of human personality outside this simple, simple affinity where we know each other, we have our own small circle of semblance. For example, recently I saw a film, I forgot the title, I think it's a German-Polish film, you know that Polish priest who was, I forgot his name, not Popieluszko, it's an old one from German occupation, who was imprisoned by Germans, <coughs> forgot his name, I'm sorry, but then volunteered himself to be shot instead of another 
Polish guy who had a family and so on and so on. It was absolutely a pure heroic act. And then there was a big polemic in Poland when they discovered that before, in the late 20s, early 30s, this same priest was racist, anti-Semitic whatsoever. But this is for me the miracle of ethics. It's not usually with a true ethical miracle your entire personality. You can be an average man and it's always, isn't it that in a true ethical great act, it's always this element of surprise, you know, like, my God, who would have expected this? You can be average opportunist. Ethics is always this moment of all of a sudden you say, I had enough. I do. These so things are here again, much more, uh, much more uh, complex. Okay. Now I got a little bit lost here, so let's go further. Uh, yes, we did this anti-totalitarian stuff. The next thing I want to say is that it would be interesting to connect this idea, Hegel's idea of the king, which I think could be very easily transposed into democracy. I mean, uh, the point of Hegel's notion of the king is not really, this is Hegel, as son of his time, the king. Hegel was just aware that you need a moment of contingency. Like, it shouldn't be decided by simple, objective, quantifiable, whatever criteria, who will lead us. Uh, that, uh, at, on the opposite hand, we have the notion of rebel, pebble which is also a very interesting point of Hegel. Why? Hegel, as we all know, was very prescient there in an almost Marxist way. Hegel got it that the capi modern capitalist or market, whatever system, necessarily produces rebel. Rebel, that is to say, a part of society with no part, with no proper place, an element out of place, or as Ambedkar, a wonderful Indian politician and thinker, the great enemy of Gandhi, and I'm here on Ambedkar's side, says, uh, as long as there are castes, there will be outcasts. You know, you never can have a hierarchic system which will include all. Okay, uh, here I think we encounter the great ambiguity of Hegel's philosophy. I think that when he deals with rebel, pebble, Hegel is not Hegelian enough, in what sense? He sees the necessity of rebel, and he's very honest, he sees no solution. He says there are some pragmatic solutions, colonization, charity, and so on, but there is no real solution of the problem. It's part of modern society to expand and as such to produce rebel. He even has this wonderful paradoxical formulation, the more a society is rich, the more necessarily it produces pebble, rebel. But I think what Hegel doesn't say is the Christian elementary insight, which would have been that Whenever you have within a totality an element which is the excess of this totality, in the sense of a part of total, let's say, social body, which is part of society but without a proper place, like this place, 
This element stands for the dimension of universality. This Hegel is not ready to accept, unfortunately. And I, I, I think that this makes all the difference between, let's call it the proto-fascist conservative Hegel, where you have this organic state, extended with estates, everyone at his place, and maybe a more radical Hegel, where you have an element where uh, within the elements of society, there is always one element in excess which stands for negativity with regard to all other determinations of society, but at the same time for universality as such. This is the basic paradox of dialectics. Let me mention, to make it clearer, another example from Marx, where I'm critical of Marx. You know, the Marxist, if you remember, you know, once there was a time, once upon a time, there were strange people called Marxists and so on. If you are old enough, you remember it. And in Marxism, you know, you have this classification of, uh, of modes of production. Primitive, pre-class society, slavery, no, sorry, then it's Asiatic mode of production, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever you call it later, socialism, communism. But if you read Marx closely, you can see that he cheats with Asiatic mode of production. Asiatic, this is why there was such a problem with it. Asiatic mode of production appears just one in the series of stages. But if you look at it closely, you will see that what Marx did is that he proposed his original classification. Uh, primitive pre-class societies, uh, slave, antique slave societies, feudalism, capitalism, socialism, whatever. And then he found societies which did not fit in any of this. So he threw all that does not fit into it into Asiatic mode of production. That is to say, what appears to be a positive category is really just a negative container. If Marx were to be honest, he should have said, we have this, this, this mode of production, and we have a mode of production of all those who doesn't fit my, my classification. No? And the idea, again, is that this is the very core of Hegelian dialectics. It is that precisely Hegel is the most, I claim, anti-organicist corporate thinker that you can imagine. It's that through particularities, the universality is also struggling with itself. Uh, what, again, let me go further. Maybe another, uh, 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 maybe uh, uh, another, maybe another example here. Uh, for uh, Hegel, the first thing to say, and it's another point of the same, you know that today it's fashionable with postmodernists, which I definitely am not, to claim how totality is bad. You know, you have this idea, one step from philosophical totality to totalitarianism. For example, Emmanuel Levinas liked to say this, that the origins of political totalitarianism is the philosophical notion of totality. Well, first, I think, if I may play a good uh, British empiricist, that if you look at it empirically, it's not true. If you look closely at the spontaneous ideology of totalitarian regimes, they were, as a rule, always uh, 
some kind of contingent historicists. I mean, my God, uh, Stalin's basic motto was everything depends on circumstances, everything is contingent, and so on. Read Hitler. Well, it's not amusing reading, it's boring, but you can learn something. In, in Hitler also, it's clear that his vision is some kind of a tragic historicist contingency. Heroes emerge, but at the end, everything falls apart. We are all doomed to die. The only thing we can do is to die fighting in a great tragic way, and so on, and so on, and so on. I claim that, first, it's again empirically wrong. Here, you should be proud as theologists here. It's not true that dogmaticism is a priori the enemy of democracy. On the contrary, you should be especially sensitive to this central point, which is that a truly democratic society needs quite many unquestionable dogmas. Dogmas. I'm using this term. What do I mean by this? Listen, let me ask you a simple question, because people are usually shocked. What do you mean dogma? Are you smuggling some of your Stalinist stuff or what? No, no, no it's something very simple. Let's take the example of rape. Would you like to live in a society where you would have to debate again and again and demonstrate that rape is bad? No, I would like to live in a society where Rape is, is a simple dogma, presupposition, accepted as something ridiculously wrong. So that if some idiot advocates rape, you know, with this stupid logic, uh, women provoke us, they really want to be raped, but are not honest enough to admit, you don't even have to reason. You treat this guy like, are you stupid or what? And it's not only this. There are many, many in this sense not dogmas in the prescribed sense, but spontaneous dogmas, which are absolutely necessary, I claim, for a functioning democracy. And even, I go a step further here, to the horror of many of my friends, and I think Siegdeutsche Zeitung even published this, I put a very weird defense of light culture, not exactly in the Angela Merkel sense, but in this sense, I think, the liberal illusion is that you can have different cultures and then all the state has to do is to provide some kind of a neutral legal frame which regulates how cultures interact. I claim this never functions. I'm not saying we have to have light culture in the simple sense of pure authority, predominance of one culture. What we need is light culture in this sense. If different cultures are to coexist, laws are not enough to regulate this coexistence. You need, again, a set of dogmas in the sense of simple rules, but unwritten rules, uh, accepted by all about, for example, how me as a Christian coexist, I don't know. With, with a Chinese guy across the street, with a Muslim across the street, and so on. If we don't have some minimal shared ethical substance, then we end with regulated hatred, which is what is for me political correctness. The reason I'm opposed to political correctness is that it tries to regulate, legalize even, 
what should be the spontaneous, as it were, ethical substance. Now, sometimes this has funny effects, I must admit. For example, I learned that in, uh, they're the most crazy politically correct, in, some, in a small uh, campus somewhere there around Oregon or where Northwestern United States, they did a detailed politically correct guide of rules to follow in seduction. Like basic rules being at every step you have to ask. Like you shouldn't simply grab the woman, but can I unbutton this button here? Can I put my head there and so on and so on? And I was told that strangely it did work. But you know why? Not because they it was taken literally, but because it was eroticized in the way couples played with it, you know. For example, all of a sudden there, instead of saying in a vulgar way, I want to sleep with you, it was, oh my God, you have a nice button there. Can I please just unbutton that button or whatever? You know, it became very elegant. In this way it works. But it must be this mediation. Otherwise, again, for me, political correctness is just, it's the worst thing that can happen. We have all effective racism and so on, and you just control it with some ethical, what, sorry, with some even legal rules. It's for me a fiasco. You know where they are too narrow. You must have noticed how, like once I was in the United States and I was asked, uh, what is the crucial ingredient of functioning multiculturalism? You can imagine how the politically correct journalist almost lost con consciousness when I said good racist jokes. <laughs> okay, they thought I'm crazy. I was not. From ex-Yugoslavia, this is my old story, I can tell you my big experience is that I'm not of course talking of racist jokes in the sense of I humiliate you, you humiliate me. But I remember how it worked in ex-Yugoslavia wonderfully that when I met a Serb friend, a Montenegro friend, each of us mockingly identified with the racist cliché about ourselves. We Slovenes were supposed to be envious misers, no? Like, what is the Slovene national program? Let's say God or a magician appears to me and tells me, I will give you a cow for free, but I warn you, I will give two cows to your neighbor. What is the Slovene farmer's answer? Rather kill one of my cows, but kill two cows of the neighbor. <laughs> That's our identity story. Then uh, Montenegrin are lazy and so on and so on. But you know in what wonderful way the exchange of these jokes functioned. It was not aggressivity. We were kind of a friendly competing about who will tell a more funny joke about oneself. And it was a wonderful instrument of some kind of a true solidarity. The signal of these jokes was, it's not just this official respect, it simply meant we are truly friends. This is not possible under political correctness. But let me return to the big story. We said Hegel rabble, rather, where Hegel was not, as it were, Hegelian enough. Now, let me, to finish, I know time is running and so on, uh, just, uh, <laughs> I claim that another point where Hegel is not Hegelian enough, ah, just one political point. I'm not here, I'm not a Marxist. I'm more and more convinced we should return from Marx to Hegel. 
because the standard Marxist reading is the Hegel's notion of rebel is a historically limited notion which points later towards the Marxist notion of proletariat. I think now, if anything, today, with all those living in slums, outcasts, those excluded, we're in a way returning from Marx to Hegel. We should maybe return from the narrow notion of proletariat to rebel, in the sense of all those half excluded and so on and so on. So, uh, yeah, another thing that I forgot. Why am I for the notion of totality? Just to finish that line. You know, totality is not for me this totalitarian notion of how you have all the crazy struggles, but at the end everything is harmonized in a higher totality. No, and I also think that this insight is deeply anti-Christian. I wonder if you agree. Namely, what I think is the most profound anti-Christian wisdom, even if it was advocated by some Christians, is this, for me, disgusting idea of to explain evil like a stain in a picture. You know this old teleological topic that if you look at the picture from too close, it appears a stain. From a proper distance, you see how what appeared to you a stain really contributes to global harmony. Okay, maybe you find this sympathetic, but uh, I would like to see people who would say Auschwitz and Gulag are stains only for our limited perspective from the global harmony. You can see how Auschwitz and Gulag contribute to the beauty of the universe. I wouldn't like to live in a universe where Auschwitz contributes to the beauty of the universe. And the way I read the death of Christ, it's precisely renouncing to this simple transcendent God, which somehow from his majestic royal perspective knows how things are. No, I think that the death of Christ is precisely solidarity with the particular. It's you suffer, it's horrible, there is no way with any bullshit theological universality to justify it. So to go on, Hegelian totality for me is a very important critical notion. It means, it doesn't mean everything can be harmonized in a higher order. It means, on the contrary, that when you speak about a certain concept order, you should include into it, as its immanent part, all the antagonism, excesses, and so on, which may appear just contingent distortions. For example, today's ideological notion of order would have been the standard Fukuyama one. Liberal democratic capitalism is the best thing we can possibly ask for, and there are some countries where horrible things happen, but they just did not yet arrive there. No, the Hegelian notion of totality tells us this. Let's take a country like Congo, which is a living nightmare today. You must know this. The state doesn't even function. You have over 100,000 of these children warriors who, you know, they discover there that if you start giving drugs to children, if you begin when they are aged five or six, then after five years you get perfect soldiers who don't care if they die and so on, all that. But as such, Congo is an integral part of global capitalism. Congo is absolutely crucial in supplying minerals uh, and so on for our digital industries and so on and so on. So you take the excess and you can show how 
it is part of the system. To include all these disturbing things into the system itself. This is for me the notion of uh, Hegelian totality. Next thing, I think that similar mistake to that of Rebel, Hegel commits it with sexuality. Now here I will try a little bit, okay, to provoke you or whatever. Uh, maybe I'm simplifying you, so I would love to get from you a critical answer correcting me if and when I am wrong. But for me, first, I will put it in very primitive, simplistic terms. I never got why sexuality, if it's not done for procreation, it's closer to some animal lust. If I may put, formulate a very common sense statement, isn't it rather the exact opposite? Animals do it for procreation. We humans take something which may appear just a biological function and transport, like you have this wonderful German word, umfunktionieren, no? And transpose it, refunctioning as an expression of spirituality. I think that human sexuality, far from being at its most elementary, what is animal in us, it's on the contrary the zero level of metaphysics. This is why Freud emphasized sexuality. Not being a naturalist, we are all animals copulating. No, Sex sexual passion is the zero level of infinity. It's where you say, I love you, I want to have sex with you infinitely to death, it doesn't matter, you are ready to risk to suspend all, uh, all empirical short-term interests and so on and so on. Uh, here I think, again, Hegel is not radical enough again. What Hegel does is that he proposes this too simple notion of sexuality, he does this towards the end of his uh, Philosophie der Natur, and then again in the theory of marriage in Rechtsphilosophie. His idea is basically that sexuality is a natural substance, animal, and then through the process of building cultural formation, it's gradually aufgehoben, civilized, like now if I see a woman, I don't knock her with a stone on the head and rape her, I do stupid things, I invite her out, I write her poems, whatever you want. But I think something is missing between the two. This zero level of absolute passion that we know, for example, from legends like Tristan and so on. What in his rewriting of Tristan, Wagner calls this, uh, this uh, Nacht, the kingdom of the night, is this absolute deadly passion which is self-destructive. It's not civilization, symbolic fictions, duties, but it's also not nature. You know who was nicely aware of this? Immanuel Kant, in a tiny text which is half forgotten today on education. Kant, it's there that Kant says this weird thing that I like, famous definition of what is man. Man is an animal who needs an answer. Sorry, a mystical Freudian sleep, who needs a master. But then how does Kant ground it? He says that only in man there is a kind of a violent freedom, a kind of a brutal freedom which animals don't have. 
animals follow their instincts. Man has this almost metaphysical, nominal, radical freedom which has to be tamed. And this freedom, again, is neither culture nor nature. The, way, the reason we need discipline is not to control our nature. It's to control this, as it were, elementary metaphysical excess. So again, I am not now simply celebrating sexuality. I'm just saying that nonetheless things are in a way more complex here. For me, the conflict between sexuality and other forms of uh, metaphysical spirituality is not a conflict between animality and uh, and spirituality it's a conflict with meta it's a metaphysical competition both none of them is animal in the sense of simple animal instincts and so on and so on okay let me go then even further the last of hegel's where i think one should read Hegel against Hegel, and which is also actual today, is Hegel's, another horror for politically correct pacifists, Hegel's theory of war. His deduction against Kant's eternal peace, that the idea is a very simple one, that uh, if we live in a well-organized civil gesellschaft and rational state, we simply get inert, identified to our particular role, narrow happiness. So from time to time, we need radical negativity, shock, which makes us aware of our true universality. Well, you purely as an individual identify with state, ready to risk your life, and so on, and so on. I think that this notion is interesting insofar as I'm tempted to say we should push Hegel further, but along his own lines, towards something like what, for example, Thomas Jefferson was saying. You know, these famous lines where he says, the tree of freedom has to be watered from time to time by blood to flourish and so on. That is to say, Hegel's mistake, I think, is to externalize this negativity. Why not say, and it's still strictly Hegelian, I say, thing. What Jefferson was saying, that to have a state which does not become an ossified mechanism, you, you need something like it needn't be a violent revolution. But you need, some, you need something like rebellion or whatever which regenerates the state. If you read Hegel in this way, you will see that Hegel is a much more perplexing open author then it may appear. Hegel is not a Hegel where finally some kind of metaphysical necessity sublates. Sublation is a very clumsy English translation, but it's the only one we have for Aufhebung, where all contingency is Aufgehoben and so on. No, no. What Hegel is saying at his best is that the contingency of radical negativity persists. For example, we never have full social, fully stable social order. There is always a threat of war, or the most subversive Hegel, incredibly actual, totally ignored. The beginning of his philosophy des Geistes, anthropologie, it's wonderful, where Hegel deals with madness, verrücktheit, torheit, where he, in a wonderful way, deduces the necessity of madness. He claims that 
it's only possible for the human animal to break with nature. The first form of break is madness, a kind of psychotic gap withdrawal. And that, then our symbolic universe of Gewohnheit customs, mechanic customs, is the normalization of this madness. So in a way, even more radically than Michel Foucault, Hegel explicitly says this, even if this doesn't mean that we all should be mad at some point. It's only possible to understand our cultural phenomena, the symbolic universe, against the eternal threat of madness. The Hegel we get here is, I think, a deeply Christological Hegel. What Hegel understood already in his notion of the king, I will now just finish with his formula, is that every universal necessity in order to actualize itself has to be supplemented with a kind of totally contingent incarnation. You have reasonable state, but it's really a state of reason if you have a contingent idiot called the king or whatever. Or even, this is why, I don't have time to develop it fully, but this is why I think Hegel, contrary to what Kierkegaard thought in a too simplified criticism of Hegel, I claim that Kierkegaard was more Hegelian than he thought. Hegel was fully aware of this idea of this fundamental anti-Platonic insight of Christianity, where, as Kierkegaard saw it correctly, no, you, uh, that, uh, that uh, you need a totally contingent event, Jesus Christ, and even if this was a contingent human being, somebody walking around 2,000 years ago, the only way to eternal truth is through that figure. There is no direct agnostic shortcut or whatever. Hegel was fully aware of this, which is why my formula is, as a leftist, in some sense communist, back from Marx to Hegel. Let's give Hegel a chance. I'm sorry if this was confused, but as my friend Dominique hinted at, I am now involved in an act of madness. I finished my book on Hegel, a short book. It will just be printed, about 1,200 pages. But okay, now I can die in peace. I, I thank you very much for your patience with my madness. Thank you.